Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome to the Investor Coaching Show. Paul Winkler here talking about money and investing. Educating because well, nobody else seems to be doing it. <laughs> or very few people. The voices that you hear the most are people that are actually educating on things they want you to know so that you'll buy what they're selling. And that is not the way we work around here. Because I think the educated investor just does not get pulled astray. And there are all kinds of ways to get pulled astray. And number one, I'm going to start with, you know, a lot of times I'll talk about the news of the day, things that are being talked about in the media. And today is no different. There was an article that I wanted to talk about here that was in MarketWatch. And it was beyond the S&P 500, how to supercharge your diversification. Something we talk about a lot, you get a lot of lip service in the finance industry of diversifying your portfolio. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, especially when you're dealing with times of calamity, a lot of times what our desire is, is to go away from diversification. I want to go towards safety. And when I go towards safety, like fixed income investments and, and things that are, you know, annuities and things that I think are safe, I'm actually increasing risk because you think about it, we actually live in a world where currencies are not tied to any kind of, of of a commodity anymore. There are all kinds of reasons for that that I won't get into. But you have fiat currencies. In other words, it is not backed by anything. So therefore, what happens is you're depending upon the currency actually maintaining value. And we call that inflation when it doesn't. And that is, of course, a big problem with those types of investments is protection against inflation, non-existent. You know, historically you look at it and you know, it can be a huge problem. Well, so what we do is we say, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. And I, I look at this as, as how do we get some semblance of security in our lives? It's just spread things out like crazy. You know, like think about your career or think about, you know, let's say whatever you do for a living, you know, what if all of a sudden what you do for a living becomes obsolete? You know, maybe you do something that is really in demand, but, you know, what if it all of a sudden becomes obsolete? What if you're that person that makes uh, horse, you know, buggy whips or something like that? Or uh, you make or you're involved in something that is being supplanted by something else. And then I've got, you know, there are all kinds of articles about how that's happening right now with AI and so on and so forth. But, you know, just think about it. What do we do to protect ourselves from that? eventuality. Well, what we do is we make sure that we're constantly learning, constantly reinventing ourselves, constantly picking up new skills, constantly doing something, anything to make sure that we don't become, uh, you know, a statistic and that we're not all of a sudden no longer needed in the economy. And that is something that, you know, changes all the times. So look at the jobs and the careers of the 70s. In the careers of the 80s and the 90s and how things have changed over the years. We've had to keep up. Well, you think about it with diversification with investing, 
you don't know what's going to be happening out there. What are the going to be the new technologies? What are going to be the new things that, that come along? What are the changes in the economic marketplace? What are the geopolitical changes that are going to happen? And how is that going to affect markets? Diversification is absolutely uh, it's just critical. So one of the things that we talk about as a basic tenet of investing, and a lot of people think they're way more diversified than they are because they own a total stock market fund or something like that. And they go, I own the total stock market. Until you explain to them that they almost own nothing in small companies in those portfolios because of the way those portfolios are weighted. They overweight big companies. And that goes with our biases. You know, when we talk about how people end up getting taken down the wrong path. It's our biases that actually drive so much of our behavior. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with certain things. Uh, certain things have done better in the recent past history, and I'm driven by that. Uh, people are driven by thinking that they're more expert than they are because maybe they're really good in their field. They think all of us, oh, well, you know, I must be, you know, I'm really great at this. I'm really smart. That means I can do anything and that investing is easy for me as well. Some of the worst m investing mistakes have been made historically by some of the smartest people going, you know, so that's just not true. So this article is talking about divert beyond the S&P 500, which I think is smart because right now the S&P has been on a run. Uh, that's Those are large 500 largest companies in the United States. It has been on a run. And I like a few things about this article, a few things I disagree with, but you know, I'll point that out because that's part of what I do here is point out things that are being taught that aren't necessarily so. Now, it talks about being beyond the S&P 500. Well, what's beyond the S&P 500? What's the first thing that they bring up? Well, they bring up bonds. Now, there is another article someplace else talking about how the 60-40 portfolio has just failed miserably. And I would agree because the way most people implement that, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, is just backwards. Uh, they own types of bonds that were longer bonds in these 60-40 portfolios. In other words, it's going to be a long time before they mature. You lend money, you know, let's say to a company or to a government, and you're not going to get your money actually back for maybe 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years. That's a long bond. And what happens is that in the interim between when you lend the money and you get the money back, you're going to get interest payments. Well, if interest rates go up, then all of a sudden those bonds become worth less and less and less and less. And all of a sudden, when interest rates go up and causing corporate expenses to go up because corporations pay interest on debt, now all of a sudden your stocks go down and your bonds go down together. So yeah, the way that most people did it, you know, when you look at it, that's why you see articles like that 60-40 doesn't work anymore. And you know, no, it doesn't if you implement, if you implement it that way. Um, and I laugh because it's it's like this is stuff I've talked about for 20 years and and you know and the academic research has been out on it for a long long time 22 years now I guess we're up to here uh, but you know it, the academic research has been out but it's just it gets ignored I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and and we got into talking about you know how frustrated he was and and I laughed and I was like I feel your pain I feel your pain. <laughs> Because he says more people search for black holes than they do, uh, you know, any of the research on like modern portfolio theory or multi-factor or, you know, any of the academic research that they just don't realize what a big deal it is. 
So the first thing he says, the most reliable thing he says here is to own bonds in addiction equities. And I always tell people, and I agree, that's what I always tell people, this is the first thing that we look at when we put together a portfolio. What's the stock versus bond mix? That's number one. And the reason being is that stocks and bonds historically don't tend to move with each other, especially when you're dealing, when you're looking at I don't like to go the long ones because they can, as I just described, they can move a lot together and really decimate you because all of a sudden they both move down and you're trying to draw an income and you're going, uh, well, which one do I sell low? I, I've heard that the golden rule of investing is buy low, sell high, and now I have to sell low, uh, which one? And that's why we want shorter and high grade types of bonds in the portfolio, as I've talked about many times here. You know, because I want to have something that I can draw income from to buy time for because historically equities always recover. I mean, you look at it, it's, it's up and down. It's just normal that they go back and forth like that. But what people do is they go, let's just have this big repository of fixed income investments and, you know, let's do the bucket approach. Let's draw from that until it's depleted and then we'll pull from equities. And, and I go, no, 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 that makes no sense. And that is and that's something I've taught elsewhere. It makes no sense because what you're doing is you're depleting it. And then once you've depleted it, what if stocks are down in that year? You're sunk, man. You are done. And now all of a sudden, what if the inflation has kicked up and, and all of a sudden your, your bonds, you know, your interest rates have gone up and your bonds have dropped down in value and you're doing that, you're selling that into a low. There's a lot of reasons that just doesn't make sense, but I won't get into right here. But um, that, that's the first thing, though, you know, the, the bonds in addition to stocks. And it says now when your overall risk is under control, you're likely to get the latest or the greatest long term benefit from diversifying your equities. And this is something I don't see enough. I hear people talk about equity stocks and they talk about bonds, but they don't talk about types of equities. And I think that's a huge, huge mistake. Now, it talks about, well, what if the stocks are pretty similar? Having more of them may not help much. And I think that is a really good point. This is true. Owning all 500 stocks in the S&P 500 essentially eliminates the chance that any single corporate disaster will take you down. However, the index is heavily weighted to stocks of giant companies, as I've said many times on the show, nailing it in this MarketWatch article. Now it says, however, the index is heavily weighted and because of that, they mostly tend to move up and down together. And you can go, as I've talked about here on the show before, you can go 20 years pretty much, or you know, like the recent period where we went like 12, 13 years with no return, you know, negative returns after inflation. Now he says, well, how do you do that? Well, you can diversify amongst groups of stocks. And then he says, don't recommend sector funds. Again, nailed it. Yes, sector funds. Too, too often people, you know, they'll go, oh, tech is really hot right now. I just saw there was an email I got. And it was a, they set up this, this tech fund or these tech stocks with insurance on them. And I'm like going, well, okay, now what's happened? You've taken a certain type of stock with a potential return that might be high in some periods of time. And you basically watered it down by insuring it because now what will happen is the rate of return, you know, when you take away risk, you take away return. I mean, it's just the way it works. 
you know, it's like when you have these options trades and stuff like that, and you have, you know, futures and, and things like that. You know, you're actually, or, you know, with the annuities, with the, you know, guaranteed, you can't lose and, and, and those types of things, they're all, they're using options type things to do that, to guarantee your downside. You know, they have municipal bonds that are insured. Well, you know, the, the higher expected return of any municipal, well, I don't like municipal bonds, but, you know, we don't, are, I, I can't remember the last time I've ever recommended using that. Uh, in in somebody's investment portfolio because of again what's what's purpose my bonds is to protect against risk and then with the municipalities you end up with risk and, and I've talked about that before too I won't go there right now but anyway so what happens is that with these options contracts and insurance you're dragging down return because you have an expense that you have incurred to do that uh, there was a guy from a big investment platform big investment platform that a lot of people, you know, there are all kinds of uh, all kinds of commercials from this platform saying, hey, you know, you can do your trades here, you can do them more cheaply, blah, 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 and, and you know, all the beautiful things. And he was being interviewed and, and he said, so what's going, they said, what's going on right now? He says, well, we're not making as much money on stock trades and, and you're not doing as much stock trading right now. And I'm going, yeah, because people are getting killed doing it, right? And, and they're, you know, since they, they've been bitten so bad, they're not doing it anymore. He said, well, what are they doing? Options. I says, well, which one do you make more money on? He goes, options. You know, I like, we make a lot more money on that. So, you know, Wall Street will do whatever you, whatever you want, they will give you. They're just big enablers. It's, it's like the parent that wants to be a really good friend to their child and just lets them do whatever they, they want, doesn't give them any kind of boundaries whatsoever. And the kid goes wayward and, find, and everything falls apart and they wonder what happened. Well, that's the same thing. You have this enabling going on on Wall Street and then people end up losing and then they go, well, what happened? Uh, maybe we just let you do whatever you wanted to do and you shot yourself in the foot and we made a bunch of money. It could be. So anyway, so he talks about in here, you know, diversifying across asset classes. Well, gee, where have you heard that before? That's what I talk about all the time, diversifying across asset classes. And using the example here, uh, like it, they use small, small value, large, large value, those asset categories. Notice something missing from that. Something that's always missing when I teach is mid-caps. Why? Because you have this something called the goalpost effect, where you find that your greatest diversification are in companies that are more different from each other. Medium-sized companies are more similar to other areas. Why is this so important? Again, when I'm taking income in retirement, if I have something that's going down, I don't want to sell into the downturn. I don't want to keep selling at lower and lower prices because when it recovers, I don't have any shares left. That's the problem you run into. So they have these asset classes that they talk about. And it says, uh, you know, sometimes what happens with the S&P 500, he says, look back to history. Going back to 1928, each of these four asset classes, along with the results of combining all four in one, the four-part combination they have in, in a chart, they're showing what happens. They say, if you believe the S&P is all you need, look at the chart and notice how many times that you end up in the bottom if you only have large U.S. stocks. It's a lot of times. And sometimes these years continued and continued. And you're sitting there going, when is this thing going to recover? And then you finally give up 
<laughs> and then it recovers after you give up, right? And that in that classic. So what happens is that you look at, and they, they show all these different periods all the way through history that I've talked about before. So I won't you know belabor that, but a lot of time in the last hundred years, you've seen where these downturns in the S and P goes on and on and on and on. And what happens is that in the period shown, they, they showed that the return of the S&P switched 34 times from positive to negative. I mean, it's a lot. That's not a recipe for peace of mind. And I think that's a really, really good point. And it says, well, you know, what can we do about this? Well, one of the things that he, they talk about doing in this article is, oh, well, you can, you, each, each of these asset classes can be now, now, I would make sure that I have international, too. You know, if you look at international stocks uh, right now, you know, as I, as I speak here, international is selling for way, way lower than U.S. for every dollar of earnings and for every dollar of book value for the assets. And it's because, you know, they're, that's been out of favor for a while. So, you know, do you go, oh, well, you know, it's been out of favor for a while. I'll just, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to own any of that. And you go, well, you know what, uh, U.S. large was out of favor uh, up till about eight, nine years ago. And then all of a sudden it did better than everything else. Does it make sense that now after it's done so well for so long, do we just load up on it? Well, most people are loaded up on it and they don't even realize they're loaded up on it. They don't realize that target date funds are primarily that asset category. They just don't even realize it because they don't even know what they're looking at. They don't even know what they've got. So he talks about in here, he talks about indexing the portfolio. And, you know, the thing is, you can large, you, large U.S. stocks, you can buy an index fund for that. Small U.S. stocks, you can buy an index for that. Well, here's the problem with that. Dissimilar price movement. Like, for example, if you look at last year, the Russell 2000 went down over 20%. If you look at the asset category, yes, it was down, but it was down a lot less, 12 which is, you know, you look at this 8% spread, that's a pretty big deal. And then you look at, you know, small companies like, uh, like small value, the index, the Russell 2000 value index would be a small cap index. And that's what index funds would actually be looking at. A lot of index funds are going to actually mirror that. Well, it went down almost 15%. Whereas actually the asset category, small value, as I would own it, actually being more true to the asset category down three. That's a big, big difference. Now, when in an up year, like the year before, where you had, let's say, uh, small stocks, the Russell 2000 went up about 14%, just over 14%. Well, small caps, as I would define that, would be not, not cap weighting, not capitalization weighting it like an index fund does, up, up over 30%. 33% for microcaps. Well, that's a pretty big difference, up 14 versus up 33. You know, so you look at that and go, wow, that can be a big, big, big difference. Uh, small value stocks up 28. And that, the asset category, as I would hold it, up over 39. You know, so what is the difference? Way beyond what I can get in this segment. But now a couple of things. I'll give you a couple of things. Number one, not doing strict capitalization weighting, weighting based on the size of the company, making sure that the portfolio doesn't fluctuate because index funds are reconstituted you know, every so often, usually about once a year. So what happens is that those indexes will look like a small cap index for a little while until it drifts. 
and then it will drift for an entire year and it be, will become more mid-cappy many times, mid, mid, medium-sized company size. And then you'll have how the portfolio is traded. You'll have the criteria for what we determine as value versus growth. So a lot of reasons that indexing is not a solution that I recommend. But overall, I give, ah, that's a pretty good grade for an article like that. Beyond the S&P 500, how to supercharge your diversification. I think it's good in general what it teaches. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area, and everything that we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get it initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degreed planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Right now, we're looking at a really interesting scenario regarding how, if we if we look at um, if we look at you know companies and you know companies, of course, have lots of different areas of expense. Uh, one of them would be cost of goods sold. They have to buy parts and things like that and to make whatever they make. Uh, they, they have infrastructure costs and maybe they have to, you know, maybe it's, it's intellectual capital that they have to buy or, or whatever, you know, software. You know, so you got your costs, you got your operating expenses, your lights, your, you know, your heat and air and, and, uh, and then, of course, you have telephone and communications and computers and, and you have your employee costs are going to be a big part of that. And one of the things that's been happening is we've had these demographic changes. And I've talked about this before, where you have certain countries around the world, Japan, uh, France, uh, and, you know, Germany, you have an aging of populations and not necessarily we're seeing a lot of replacement of those populations through births for all kinds of reasons, all kinds of reasons that I'm just, that's not my kind of show. So I'm not getting into that right now. Uh, but you know, there are things going on where all of a sudden now we're not seeing the growth in the population. And of course we need employees. Well, what's happening, it, according to the Wall Street Journal, it wasn't, I just wasn't in the mood for the, for, to work, was the title of this article. And it was American employees reinvent the sick day. You know, so they're saying that the bar for, the, for taking a sick day is getting lower, and some bosses say that it's a problem. Uh, they're finding that U.S. workers have long viewed and unwillingness to take sick days as a badge of honor. Laurel workers care much, uh, that's a laurel workers care much less about these days. Number of sick days Americans take annually has soared since the pandemic, employee payroll data show. You know, so now we got 
lower birth rates, and now we got more people taking sick days. It'll probably start to change in a little bit. But you know, think about it. So what is a company to do when this kind of change in behavior takes place? And you go, well, what, what's going on? I mean, this guy, got a, he's taking a picture with his son, and they're off at a football game on his sick day. <laughs> Well, he was too sick to go into work, but he wasn't too sick to go and take a selfie at a football game. And you go, whoa, okay. And, you know, they, they said the younger generations are in front. Younger workers used to follow the example of their older peers and come in even when under the weather. And what they're finding, that, that is changing. And I think that there was another article in the same Wall Street Journal that explains what happens when companies do these kind of things. And it was entitled, Amazon Introducing Warehouse Overhaul with Robotics to Speed Deliveries. And I think that's what we're going to start to see more and more. Uh, they have looked at, you know, we've all been talking about robotics for many, many years, right? Well, now what's happening is you have AI-equipped sortation machines. Robotic arms. So now they're starting to take the intellectual type of duties that, that, that employees are engaging in or have engaged in. And that's what I've talked about here on the show before is that, you know, you look at the Industrial Revolution that was taking physical labor and replacing it with mechanized labor. And now with AI, we're starting to see intellectual labor being mechanized. Because companies are going to figure out some way to do this. And it is always a question of which costs more. Does the employee cost more or does the machine? Because machines are expensive. Which one is more expensive? And what is happening is we're starting to look at that and go, well, and in some cases, if we start to lose the work ethic, that is going to be what ends up happening. It's either that or do without. And then all of a sudden, you know, things become more expensive because they become more expensive to produce. And then all of a sudden, people all of a sudden get, regain their work ethic back. Because if I want anything, I better work. Uh, and of course, that changes the pressure on, and this is something Alan Greenspan talked about 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, talked about immigration and how to do it more smartly. You know, we... Don't just let anybody into the country, but we look for types of people that we need and that we want and, and you know, that will adapt to our way of life and, and so on and so forth. And that's the type of person that you let into a country because reality of it is, I think I talked about a few weeks ago, it's like a 1.3 million person increase in the population in the United States in the last calendar year. And 1 million of it was immigration, you know, illegal, legal. I don't know. They didn't give the breakdown on that. But that's a pretty small growth in population from birth. And so what happens is if we're not going to have that growth in the population from that source, we're going to have to get it from another source. But what has always happened and what continues to happen is the finding ways to replace labor and mechanizing it if we don't have it. Why am I talking about this? Because... This is why I like owning companies. Companies will adapt and they will do whatever they've got to do to get to profitability. And that is a perfect example of how they do just that. They will figure out some way, if it's going to be reducing expenses, 
If, if we can increase sales someplace, yeah, great, we're gonna increase sales someplace, but we're gonna reduce expenses if we can't do that. That is why stock markets, historically, you look at it during recessions. You look at it most of the time during recessions. Even if you invest at the beginning of a recession, stock markets typically go up more than they go down, even in recessions, because you have the ability to do that to increase profitability, even in a down economic time. And that's just another good example of how that happens. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there. And if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more competent investors and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.